like to invite you to remain standing, reach for your Bibles, and turn in it to Philippians. We're in chapter 2, concluding a two-part sermon uh, that Pastor Bruce started last week. Begin with, uh, with Timothy, and today he'll uh, conclude it with Epaphroditus. And uh, this is found on page 1165 in your pew Bible, if you need that. Uh, and we're, we're uh, in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, and we'll read through verse 30. Philippians chapter 2, verse 25 through verse 30. Follow along with me as I read. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow." I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Father God, we praise you and thank you for this day. Thank you for our mothers and, and, and all that they mean to us. And Father, I pray, praise them and, and, and thank you for them. And Father, I thank you for your word, for its instruction to us, for its, uh, the way it uh, encourages us and convicts us. And Father, I pray that you would work mightily uh, in this sermon today. Help us to respond with open hearts and receptive ears. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Are you a risk taker? Are you a risk taker in life? Half Dome is an impressive granite monolith that rises some 5,000 feet above the valley in Yosemite National Park in California. Half Dome, as it's called, is one of the most dangerous hikes that you will be able to find in a national park. It is a challenging hike for even the most experienced of hikers. The approach to Half Dome is steep and difficult. In fact, the last 400 vertical feet up the eastern slope are so sheer that the staff had to install cables so you could cling to them as you pull yourself up. And for those willing to take the risk, the Half Dome cables will be one of the most memorial moments that you may ever have hiking. It may also be pretty intimidating. Yosemite National Park's website says this about the final climb to the summit of Half Dome. For most, it is an exciting, arduous hike. For a few, it becomes more of an adventure than they ever wanted in life. Indeed, park rangers assist hundreds of people on the Half Dome Trail every summer. Twenty-nine hikers and rock climbers have lost their lives climbing Half Dome. In 2019, a 29-year-old woman fell 500 feet to her death while hiking up Half Dome. Daniel Burnett was climbing the steepest part of the climb up the cables near the summit of Half Dome when she lost her balance, slipped, and fell to her death. One person who was hiking up the dome that same day wrote on his Facebook page, Yosemite. 
I like to bring friends along and give them new life experiences. This half-dome trip wasn't the experience we had planned for. Today, I watched someone slip, fall, and slide off of half-dome to her death. Me and my friend both reached out to try and grab her, but she was too far away. Definitely not something you ever expect to see or be part of. Risk. Risk is the potential of gaining something of value or losing something of value. Risk is the intentional interaction with uncertainty. So again, I ask the question, are you a risk taker? You've heard the sayings, perhaps, when we stop taking risks, we stop living life. Or the other saying, take risk. If you win, you'll be happy. If you lose, you will be wise. Eleanor Roosevelt once said, do one thing every day that scares you. Jimmy Carter said, go out on a limb. That's where the fruit is. Mario Andretti said, if things seem under control, well, you're not going fast enough. And some of you might be thinking, whoa, wait a minute, Bruce. Godly people don't take risk in life. Are you sure about that? John Piper challenges this line of thinking when he writes, and I quote, is taking risk unwise and unloving? Maybe, but maybe not. What if circumstances are such that not taking a risk will result in loss and injury? It may not be wise to play it safe. And what if successful risk would bring great benefit to many people and its failures would bring harm only to yourself? It may not be loving to choose the comfort of security when something great may be achieved for the cause of God and for the good of others. So let me ask you, What if Esther had never risked her life to come before the king? Would the Jews have been saved? What if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had not risked telling King Nebuchadnezzar, no matter what, we will not bow down to your golden image? What if the Apostle Paul had not risked going to Jerusalem, though he was told he would probably be arrested, then delayed, shipwrecked, and finally put under house arrest in Rome? There would be no letter to the Philippians, which we are going through right now in this sermon series. Listen, taking risk is a part of not just life, it's a part of living by faith. Taking risk is what impacts others for Christ. And today I want to introduce you to another faithful servant who risked his life for Christ. His name is Epaphroditus. Notice this about him, the second faithful servant to follow. Epaphroditus is an example of what we might call a risk taker for God. A risk taker for God. He actually shows us here what it looks like to risk your life for Jesus Christ in the gospel. Paul writes here of Epaphroditus in verse 30, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, this Greek word that Paul uses here for risking, risking his life, it means to take a risk. It means to expose oneself to danger. It's actually a gambling term. The idea is to stake everything you've got on the roll of a dice. And in the case of Epaphroditus, it means to stake everything on the Lord. It means to bet your life on God. You might say Epaphroditus was then a 
gambler for God. We're saying he's a risk taker for God. He gambled everything for Christ and the gospel. He risked his life and almost died for the work of Christ without total disregard, with total disregard for his own welfare. Epaphroditus put his life on the line for Christ and the gospel. He shows us what it looks like to risk your life for the sake of Christ and the gospel. And so let's unpack this. Let's look at this risk taker for God that Paul here now gives us as an example to follow. Number one, notice this. Epaphroditus was a a dedicated servant of the Lord. He was a dedicated servant of the Lord. Paul writes in verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, Paul is waiting, as we saw last Sunday, he's waiting to send Timothy to the church at Philippi, but he's sending Epaphroditus as soon as possible. Unlike Timothy, Epaphroditus is not a pastor. He was just a, and I say just in quotes, he uh, he was a faithful member of the church at Philippi. In fact, according to chapter 4, Here in Philippians, in verse 18, Epaphroditus was the trusted member of this church of Philippi who delivered the church's financial gift to Paul to help pay Paul's expenses while he was under house arrest in Rome. Now, this was crucial because the Roman prison system didn't provide food and clothing or medical care. And so Epaphroditus was chosen by the church to deliver that financial gift to Paul in Rome. And so now Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi to deliver this letter that we're studying. It's a letter that actually serves as Paul's thank you to the church at Philippi. Now again, this was no easy trip, as we saw last Sunday, from Philippi to Rome or from Rome to Philippi. This 800-mile trek would take around six weeks. Plus, it was dangerous, especially when you're carrying a large sum of money like Epaphroditus was. In fact, it was almost expected that on some roads that you would be attacked. You would be robbed by bandits or thieves and robbers. Paul was attacked numerous times on his missionary journeys when listing his sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And so it was expected that Epaphroditus and more than likely some of his traveling companions would have to fend off an attack in order to deliver this money, this financial gift to Paul without being robbed. But as it turns out, the real threat to Epaphroditus' life was not bandits, it wasn't robbers, rather it was illness. A serious illness to the point of even death. And so, think about it. Epaphroditus had this dangerous mission that required risking his life, required this courageous gamble on his part. He was willing to risk his life to serve Christ by serving the church and to serve Paul. He was a gambler for God, a risk taker for God. But Epaphroditus didn't start out that way. He didn't just wake up one day as a risk taker for God. He didn't start out that way. In fact, most scholars believe he came from a pagan, non-Christian family because of his name, Epaphroditus. In fact, his name... Epaphroditus, it actually comes from the name Aphrodite, 
You've heard of that name. You're familiar with it. The Greek goddess of love and sex, pleasure and passion. In fact, no Christian parent would name their son Epaphroditus. But somewhere along the way, Epaphroditus heard about Jesus Christ and trusted him for his salvation. And even though his name remained the same, his allegiance was forever changed. And so was his character and his dedication as a servant of the Lord. And so what Paul does here now, in the rest of this verse, he actually describes Epaphroditus' dedication as a servant of the Lord by using none other or no less than five different titles. Notice what he says in verse 25. He calls him my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. And so... We see here his dedication that he was Paul's brother in the Lord. He was Paul's brother in the Lord. Now, Paul frequently addresses believers in Christ as brothers in the Lord or sisters in Christ. Not because they share the same DNA, but because God has graciously adopted them all as his beloved children. And so through faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ... We have been what? We've been redeemed from our sins, and we've been adopted by the Father into his eternal family. And so when you become a Christian, not only do you have a new relationship with God the Father, but you also get a new relationship with other believers in Christ. You are now brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this term brother may not mean much to you, especially if you grew up in a church where you heard it regularly. In fact, for some of us, the term may sound a bit cheesy. Oh, Some Christians use the term brother because they, they just can't remember each other's names. Oh, hey, brother, how you doing? Go to a pastor's conference and you'll hear the term used all the time. Brother, hey, brother, brother. In fact, it makes me want to say, oh, brother. But when you think about it, when you get past what, you know, the cheesiness of it, It's really not cheesy. In fact, it's a miracle that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Our identity has changed. God is our Heavenly Father, and we are adopted family members. And and in calling Epaphroditus brother, Paul is also highlighting his affection, his love for Epaphroditus. Because when you serve shoulder to shoulder and you go through hard times with Christian brothers and sisters at your side, listen, you begin to form a deep relationship with them. And such was the case here with Paul and Epaphroditus. But he was more than just Paul's brother in the faith. Paul says he was also a fellow worker with him. He was a fellow worker with Paul. And so Paul and Epaphroditus also share a common mission. Epaphroditus, it's, it's easy to look at the text and say, oh, he's just delivering a bag of money to Paul from the church of Philippi. But it's way more than that. He was actually joining Paul in the work of the gospel. They both labored in the same mission here. And though Paul was, we know he's the, the more public, upfront apostle, and Epaphroditus was the behind-the-scenes servant. Listen, the two were equal co-workers for the cause of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul, Paul loves using this term, fellow worker, to refer to those who are partners in the work of the ministry. 
In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3.9, Paul uses this term to describe all believers as fellow workers with God himself. But then Paul goes on. He doesn't stop here. He's, yes, my brother in the faith. He's my fellow worker with me. But Paul says Epaphrodites was also a fellow soldier. He's a fellow soldier with Paul. Because Paul has no illusions about what they are in, what they're involved in, what the ministry is about. He is a soldier in God's army. And Epaphroditus, listen, he's no weekend warrior. He is battle-tested soldier who had been wounded in the field of ministry. Epaphroditus shows up in Rome, having risked his life by carrying this sum of money, and now publicly identifies with a man facing a capital crime for the cause of Christ. As William Barclay writes, Epaphroditus literally places himself in the line of fire by associating with the Apostle Paul. Paul is fighting in a spiritual battle. And he doesn't hesitate here now to remind the Philippian believers that he and Epaphroditus fought shoulder to shoulder in Rome. In fact, the word that Paul uses for soldier, it's the same word to describe the Roman soldiers to whom Paul is chained at the wrist. And it's the same word Paul uses now for Epaphroditus, fellow soldier. It's almost as if Paul is saying to the church of Philippi, listen, I am bound to these Roman soldiers by chains of iron. But praise God that I am bound to a faithful soldier by chains of brotherly love for the cause of Christ. Now, there's also speculation that Paul is now, he's anticipating some criticism from the church of Philippi in regards to Epaphroditus. He's anticipating that some in the church of Philippi may think that Epaphroditus just cut his mission short, that he quit his task, that he abandoned Paul so that he could retreat home to safety. Hey, did you hear about Epaphroditus? He's now back from Rome. Wow, so soon? I can't believe it. I wonder why. Oh, it probably got too hard for him, so I guess he just quit. Who would have ever thought? Understand something here. These terms were carefully selected by Paul to defend the reputation of Epaphroditus when he returns back to the church. He wasn't lazy, he wasn't difficult, and he certainly didn't quit. Paul says, no, he's my brother. He's my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier. Epaphroditus, listen, church, he is everything that you sent him to be for me. And then notice, Paul goes on. He continues and says that he was a messenger to myself from you guys. In fact, this Greek word for messenger, it actually means apostles, where we get the word apostle from, which means sent one. And so Epaphroditus was sent on a mission from the Philippian church to convey their love for Paul and to give him their financial gift. And although Paul is not suggesting that Epaphroditus is a, quote, an official apostle like himself, Paul is doing something here by using this term. He is explicitly or implicitly ranking Epaphroditus with himself in their service to the Lord. He's, he's, 
we know Paul's here, and what he's doing is he is raising up Epaphroditus' service on the same level as Paul. And then Paul ends it by saying, he was a minister to my needs. He was a minister to me personally. In fact, this word minister, it's an interesting word because it carries the idea of priestly service in a worship setting. So it's taking us back to the Old Testament. This word doesn't necessarily refer to a position, but more to a particular function. In other words, as Epaphroditus ministered to Paul's need there in the, under house arrest in Rome, it was done, Paul is saying, it was done as an act of worship to God. Paul is effectively saying to this church at Philippi, listen, The man who returns to you with this letter in his hands happens to be a very valuable minister of God's grace to my needs. So here's the picture, if we can put it in our minds, in the words of one author named Kent Hughes. And I quote, he says, or he writes, Epaphroditus was a layman whom we would never have heard of were it not for Paul's brief reference here. Epaphroditus is only mentioned in the scriptures twice, right here in Philippians. Epaphroditus never served in a public capacity. He did not shepherd a flock as Timothy did. He did not take the gospel to an unreached area. He did not receive special revelation from God. He didn't even write anything. All he did was faithfully deliver a bag of money to Paul and then look after him. Yet he is called by Paul brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister. And so we must understand that to serve in some unnoticed, unrecognized place in the body of Christ is as much the work of Christ as is public ministry. Whoa. Whoa. Epaphroditus, what a dedicated servant of the Lord, risking his life to serve Paul and to serve the church. No wonder Paul singles him out as this example to follow when so many were looking out for themselves, for their comfort, looking out for their safety. We also learn, number two, Epaphroditus was sincerely concerned for the Philippian believers. He was sincerely concerned for them. What Paul does now, he actually tells us why He's sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi sooner than later, sooner than planned, sooner than they anticipated. Notice what Paul writes in verse 26. Paul says, for he has been longing for you. The you there is in reference to the church at Philippi, the believers there. And he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And so Paul sent Epaphroditus back because he got sick. And you might think, well, we all get sick, Paul. How sick was he? Well, notice verse 27. Paul says, indeed, he was ill near to death. We might say he was at death's door. In other words, Epaphroditus, he didn't just pick up some little cold. He didn't just have some sort of allergic reaction to the COVID vaccine. Apparently, after traveling 800 miles from Philippi to Rome, Epaphroditus fell gravely ill with a serious disease and he nearly died from it. 
Now, whether he got sick on the way to Rome or after his arrival in Rome, we don't know for sure. Paul doesn't tell us. What we do know is that in those days, something called Roman fever took many, many lives. It was real. In fact, scholars speculate that Epaphroditus could have contracted malaria or even the bubonic plague, both of which were common and untreatable in the Roman world. Paul does not describe Epaphroditus' symptoms for us, except to say not once but three different times that he was near to death. If you've ever traveled abroad, especially overseas to a third world country, then you know the importance of taking medical precautions. Remember, Epaphroditus faced all the dangers of travel without the benefits of modern medicine that we have. And so as a result, the disease he contracted nearly took his life. In fact, his traveling companions, they had all but given up hope that he would even live when they went back to Philippi and told the church about Epaphroditus. And when the Philippians heard the gravity of his sickness, man, they were worried about it. And they sent now a message back to Rome. And this brings us to Epaphroditus' concern. Notice, he longed to assure the Philippians that he was okay. He longed to assure them that, hey, I'm fine. I'm still alive. Paul says in verse 26, look at it again. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, this verse is rather remarkable. Because Epaphroditus is the one who is sick. And yet, we don't read of any self-pity here. Rather, quite the opposite. He's not concerned about his own physical condition. In fact, he is more concerned about the anxiety of the Philippian believers. Literally, Paul uses the word and says he's distressed that he's causing them distress. Now, I must admit... I'll raise my hand to this. This is a challenging example to follow. Because when I get sick, and I don't get sick a whole lot, but when I do, I admit I'm a big baby. I just want Darla to take care of me and make me chicken noodle soup and pamper me. Well, Epaphroditus' sickness was much, much worse than the common flu. And yet he he considered others more important than himself, even in his sickness. In fact, it's really interesting because this word that Paul used, distress, it's the same word to describe Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying to the Father before he goes to the cross. Jesus is distressed about what he's getting ready to go through so much that he prays and he sweats what are like almost drops of blood in his distress. And Epaphroditus is distressed. Because he knows how worried and anxious the Philippian believers are in thinking that he was sick and probably died. And he longed to assure them that he is okay. And the reason that he's okay is why. Notice it here. It's because God intervened. God miraculously intervened and mercifully healed him from a deadly sickness. So again, just how sick was Epaphroditus? Well, Paul says that he was so sick that he was near to death. Now, again, this wasn't a cold. This wasn't just some sort of spell of fatigue. 
Epaphroditus literally had one foot in the grave. In fact, Paul assumed that he would die. Paul's picking out the casket. He's asking Epaphroditus, what hymns do you want us to sing at your funeral service? You say, how do we know that? Well, look what Paul writes in verse 27. He says, indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, with the benefits of modern medicine that we have access to to today, it is quite easy for us to just read right past this phrase, but God had mercy on him. But God had mercy on him. That is an astonishing phrase. But God had mercy on him. Because in Paul's day, very few people actually drew back from death's door when it was knocking. I mean, the only reason Epaphroditus is alive is because God wanted him alive. Period. Paul is clearly communicating that this was not a matter of Epaphroditus responding to the right medication and plenty of rest. No, he had been spared death by the merciful intervention of God himself. As Walter Hansen writes, the focus is God-centered. There is no apostolic miracle of healing here. There's no prayer of faith here. There's no gathering of the elders here. There's no desperate intercession by the church here. Epaphroditus was going to die But God. But God. His recovery, in other words, was due solely to the sovereign act of a merciful God. And that divine mercy embraced not only Epaphroditus, but also Paul himself. Whose sorrow over his brother's sickness would have been compounded by further sorrow if he had died. But God spared Paul sorrow upon sorrow. We'll talk about this more next Sunday. But Paul knows that dying is gain for believers in Jesus Christ. We, he knows that. But he also, that he also is human being. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't mourn and grieve when somebody you love dies. And yet how grateful Paul was for the merciful intervention of God. He attributes it to God. Epaphroditus is alive. Yes, Epaphroditus longed for the Philippians to know that he was back from the dead. But what's interesting here is Paul longs. He desires for the Philippians church to know something beyond just that Epaphroditus is alive. Notice number three. He wants the Philippian believers to know that Epaphroditus was worthy to be received in the Lord with all joy. Notice again what Paul says in verses 28 through 30. He says, I am the more eager to send him. This is Paul writing. Paul is eager to send Epaphroditus back. Therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, you almost get the impression here 
that Paul wants to make sure of something. That he wants to make sure that the Philippians, that they receive Epaphroditus back without any hesitation on their part, without any doubt, without any suspicion that he is the real deal, that he is a faithful servant of the Lord. Paul wants them to rejoice at seeing Epaphroditus again. He wants them to welcome him home with all joy. It's like Paul is saying, listen, church, don't hold back. Celebrate his homecoming. For he nearly died for the work of Jesus Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In other words, Paul is saying to the church, this dude here, this guy you entrusted with the sum of money to take, that you, you chose out for this mission that we had here. You chose him, and he made this huge sacrifice for Christ on behalf of you guys. Epaphroditus risked his life to make up what was lacking in your service to me, Paul is saying. He said, what was lacking? Well, what was lacking was the Philippians' presence. They're in Philippi. Paul's in a prison in Rome. They can't go there. So what was lacking was their presence. But Epaphroditus could go there. Epaphroditus represented them in their absence. And in so doing, he almost died for the work of Christ. And so no wonder Paul says, honor such men. Honor such servants of the Lord. In fact, notice Epaphroditus' reward. He exemplified a servant's heart. He endured a servant's hardship. And Paul says such servants of the Lord are to be honored. Honored. Now this command to honor Epaphroditus, it is so refreshing. Oh, so refreshing. Because in Paul's day, just like in our day, the world is quick to honor whom? Who does the world honor? Certainly not servants of the Lord. The world is quick to honor the beautiful, the talented, the powerful, the influencers. But here's a simple messenger who took a gift to Paul in humble service and sacrifice. And Paul says to honor such faithful servants. And ultimately, such servants, we know, will be honored by the Lord himself. In fact, God promises in 1 Samuel 2.30, those who honor me, I will honor. And according to Matthew 25.21, we, we can look forward to hearing those words from Jesus Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Epaphroditus' illness was actually the price he paid for the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I will resist the urge to make application to the coronavirus here, lest I get myself in trouble. I will let you connect the dots to this in application. His illness might appear on the surface for us. It might appear a little less heroic. It might appear 
a little less directly related to the cause of Christ than, let's say, Paul's imprisonment. After all, Paul got arrested. Paul got beaten for doing what? For proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We might say, that's, that's real persecution. That's truly risking your life for Jesus Christ. Epaphroditus, on the other hand, well, hey, he just got sick. And after all, even unbelievers get sick, right? Even unbelievers get the coronavirus. But that's not the way Paul viewed Epaphroditus' sickness and suffering here, does he? His sickness invaded his life precisely because he was risking his life for Jesus Christ. True, no persecutor was hunting down Epaphroditus like they did Paul. But the price that he paid to serve the church and to serve Paul was suffering for Jesus' sake as surely as were the scars on Paul's back from his beating at Philippi. So what do you think, then, of a servant like Epaphroditus who risked his life for Christ? Well, I hope you think nobly of him. I, think you, I hope you will honor such people like Epaphroditus. People even in our church, such servants. And beyond our church, in, in the Christian community around the world. Missionaries that we partner with. The life lesson here, and there are many that we could draw out, but let me just leave you with one life lesson from Epaphroditus, this risk taker for God. And that's this, risking your life for Christ. Listen to me, it is always worth it. It is always, always, always worth risking your life for God. And here's why, you cannot lose with God. You can't lose with God. Now, if we were to ask the world, if we were to ask the culture, if we were to even ask your family members, some, your co-workers, maybe your neighbors or whoever, and we were to ask them what they think of Epaphroditus, told the story, they would say, well, he gambled everything on God and he lost. What a loser. He risked all that. He risked his life for God and that's is all he gets. But Paul says something entirely different here. Paul says this dude won. Epaphroditus is, the, is an example of what Paul writes about in Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so if to live for you is money, then to die is loss. If for you to live is pleasure, then to die is loss. If for you to live is this world, then to die is loss. If for you to live is self, then to die is loss. But if for you to live is Christ, then on the promises of Jesus Christ and what Paul's testimony is, we can claim, we can say, then for you to die is what? Gain. It is gain. It is gain, regardless of what our culture says. It is gain. Listen, gambling your life on God is gain. Risking your life for Christ is gain. You can't lose with God. You believe it. And not just believe it, but are we living that way? 
And folks, this last year has given us that opportunity. But it's not just this last year, it's also now and going forward. Because more than likely, the times in which we live are not going to get better for Christians, but simply worse. And are we willing to risk our lives for the sake of Christ and the gospel? Or will we hole up in our houses and will we value comfort and safety more than Jesus Christ and the gospel? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your servants like Epaphroditus who risked their lives for Christ. Give us the grace to follow his example, trusting you with our lives. May we strive to cultivate a servant's heart and endure a servant's hardship, knowing that there is a servant's honor that awaits us from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.